Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I just point to the logo on my chest and tell them, Slammy, Ego, Slammy, Ego, Slammy, Ego, Slammy, Ego, Get it up hard, hit it with strike, from the national anthem to the bottom of the night. I'm in Slammy, Ego, Slammy, Ego, Slammy, Ego, Slammy, Ego. You already know what's up. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode th- 440. Excuse me. We're not in the 300s, or 300s anymore. We're just continuing to go. Episode 440 of the Talking Friars podcast and YouTube show. Ben Fadden with you here. And I also got a special guest, Darnay Tripp from NBC San Diego. Does great work there. I also just started a collaboration with San Diego Sports 760 that he does on Mondays with Darren Smith and with Jim Russell, John Schaefer. So it does great stuff. Uh, Darnay, thanks so much for joining the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. All right. So we're going to get into a variety of topics here just for those listening or watching the show on YouTube. We'll get to the Padres, obviously, first, and then San Diego State, U.S. Women's National Team, San Diego Wave. So a lot to talk about here. First off, Padres. Obviously, they just lost this series to the Los Angeles Dodgers. They dropped three out of four. They're now 55 and 58, four games back as of now uh, of a playoff spot. Do you think right now that they're in a good spot, you know, obviously with the games left to go to end up getting to the postseason? Yeah, I mean, they're not I would say they're not in a bad spot. You know, I I don't know if I'd quite say they're in like a great spot. Obviously, you want to be in possession of one of those wild card uh, spots and, and, you know, there's still a few games back, but I mean, considering where they were a few, a few weeks ago, um, even just kind of the week after the deadline, the pirate series where it looked like they were kind of moving in the wrong direction and they'd mostly kind of gotten things straightened out and look, you, you face the Dodgers. This unfortunately tends to be what happens when they see them during the regular season, at least, uh, but that's not the team that they need to catch. And, and, you know, it didn't, it's it's like you you miss out on opportunities to make up some ground by losing 304 but it's not like they they slid you know a whole lot back you know right. in, in the process and you know fortunately you've got a bunch of other teams that are kind of struggling in that wild card picture and look we we've seen teams come back from 6 7 games late august early september on like these things have happened before there's not a, a a super convincing group of teams ahead of them. I mean, Chicago Cubs. I mean, what what's gotten into them? Like, 
uh, all of a sudden they catch fire. They do what we've wanted the Padres to do all season and, and it hasn't been the case. So that doesn't make it any easier, but um, it's, all, it's like you can almost compartmentalize these Dodgers series. And it's a bummer when they come around and they need to get wins, but you got a bunch against the Diamondbacks. You got the Marlins, you got the Brewers, you got the Phillies, Giants ahead. So they're going to have opportunities to make up some ground. For sure. Yeah. This, this past weekend was definitely disappointing because there were games that they could have won. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just did a series reaction. It's like, yeah, they, they could have won this series. They could have obviously split this series, having a five, nothing lead in the series finale. And obviously game one, having Robert Suarez on the mound with a lead. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're going to take that 10 out of 10 times. You will take that. And it just didn't happen. Uh, and obviously you'll take a five, nothing lead and it just didn't happen. But the good news obviously is, yeah, some other teams in front of the Padres have they have not played great baseball. I was looking at the standings earlier, and there are some teams in front. That I think the three teams in front that aren't in a wild card spot are like three and seven, two and eight in their last ten games. So mm-hmm. that's definitely helped the Padres. Um, moving to what AJ did at the trade deadline, AJ Preller goes out, makes some moves, you know, on the margins. And when I realized that okay, they're not going to sell uh, after the Rangers series. I was like, don't go trade top prospects, making moves on the margins. Like, okay, I understand that. You're not going to give up on this season with Peter Scyther and A.J. Preller, all that they've invested. I understood it. I didn't think that they should have went and been buyers. I didn't think this team deserved to do that. And just the big sample size of 100-plus games of inconsistency, I was just, hey, if you're going to make the postseason, go do it yourself. I don't think you should deserve to have other guys come in, but they weren't big splashy additions that costed the Padres big uh, prospects or big, you know, returns back to those other teams. So what did you think of AJ's deadline? Did you like what he did and what, what did you want him to do uh, at the deadline there? That's a really good question. I think my feelings on it changed kind of almost every day and I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that because there was something enticing and now, you know, there's been some reporting on on what the Mets got back when they sold. Um, yeah, there was part of me that's like, you know, there might be some benefit to doing that. And, you know, maybe this kind of rounds out the roster and gives them some kind of useful pieces in, in 24 and 25 and cheap pieces at that um, kind of in the next couple of years and beyond. Uh, but I also understand how you've made such a commitment you've you've made it clear that you're going for it and to to change course would be difficult to sell to the fan base and to the players as well and so you know they didn't really do enough to convince you that they should really go too far one way or the other they didn't play so poorly that you're like obviously sell snell obviously sell hater they didn't play well enough to be like all right let's make a splash and you know they're at there, it didn't seem like there were too many splashes to be had. I mean, obviously Verlander to Houston and, and that sort of thing. But um, I don't know. It seemed like a bit of a subdued um, trade deadline. Maybe that's just because I'm thinking about Soto and Hayter last year. And it's hard to ever match up with that. But I felt like they played it pretty well. And on paper, they got the pieces that they need. What's difficult is, as we've seen with the Padres and trade deadlines, like checking those boxes with like the right guys on paper hasn't always like turned out. Yep. You know, like getting a reliever in Daniel Hudson in 2021. And um, you know, guys like Mitch Moreland, who you who seemed like super useful, just didn't work out. And even last year, like Josh Bell not hitting, and he certainly had had some moments, but wasn't the guy as consistently as he was with the Nats. Um, but to get 
you know, DH type help, uh, guys that can play first base, a reliever that's had a tough season and continued to have a tough season today against the Dodgers and Barlow. Um, and then, and I mean, that's the tough part now. It's like you asked me right after Rich Hill get blows up. Yeah. Hello blows up, uh, you know, Choi and Cooper, those guys haven't really like done a whole lot for you yet. Uh, but in just in terms of like the profile of the guys, I think it was a useful deadline. Um, now let's see if those guys can kind of play up to their capabilities and be the types of players that they need the Padres to be in order to kind of patch up some of those holes, um, you know, address some of those weaknesses and, and help this team kind of, you know, get a little bit closer to the club that we expected to see. What sucks after this deadline was obviously Joe Musgrove and the mm -hmm. injury and him being out, not just three weeks. It's going to be more than that. He's shut down for three weeks and, he might not return at all this season. He might return at some point in September. This is obviously a huge blow to this Padres team. I'm glad that it's on the pitching side and it's, you know, once, maybe twice a week, depending on the week. And it's not an everyday player. But do you see this as something that we're going to look back on and be like, wow, the Padres missed the postseason potentially because Musgrove got hurt? Yeah. I mean, look, when the margins are as slim as they likely will be. I mean, when you're in the position that you are, you don't necessarily expect to like have a playoff spot sewed up by mid-September and coast into the, you know, coast into October. Um, and so, yeah, obviously when you have somebody as good as Joe Musgrove and generally reliable as Joe Musgrove, uh, that's that's going to be in the back of your mind. And um, it's it's unfortunate, but these injuries happen. And if you look back at the last couple of seasons, like since 21, they're injury luck from the pitching standpoint in terms of start has been pretty good. Mm -hmm. I mean, Joe, you Snell, all healthy last year. Uh, Joe's obviously dealt with some stuff this year, Darvish a little bit, um, you know, the illness and all that. Um, so not that you're necessarily due. You never want to see these things come up and, and, you know, especially somebody to anybody, but you know how much it means to Joe and it's been a frustrating season for him. And he would love nothing more than to be able to kind of help his team go on a run here. And, um, that that's going to be difficult. The good thing about him is, you know, he's going to do everything he possibly can to get healthy and to get right. But, um, yeah, you can't help but wonder, you know, when you're trying to figure out what it's going to take to make the postseason if that's one of those things that, that ultimately holds them back for sure. And I was saying this earlier, like with Joe Musgrove, it felt like it was wind day him and Snell every day. It was mm. when they were on the mound. It's like, okay, Padres they have a really good shot at winning today. I think what needs to happen here is when Rich Hill's on the mound, when Pedro Avila's on the mound or when Nick Martinez Score is on a the dozen mound. Runs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that can't be us going into that thinking, okay, it's a lost day. Like we got to yeah. have some type of chance here. So we'll see what Tuesday brings against the Mariners and Richo. Obviously I love that he was accountable and he just, yeah. can't, he just can't give up that many runs, obviously results wise. And I think he got a little bit unlucky in some of those instances and in some of the spots there against the Dodgers. But again, the results are what matters most here, especially this late in the year. And he knows he can't be that bad results wise going forward. I, I wish I could remember where I saw it on Twitter who, who retweeted it because I didn't recognize the account and you might have seen this, but they listed like the luckiest and unluckiest starting pitchers from Sunday, you know, based on like expected on base and that sort of thing. And then what ended up happening? 
who was the unluckiest? Rich Hill. I mean, the Ahmed Rosario homer was like a perfect example. Yeah. And then the luckiest was Lance Lynn. And yeah. so it's just like, of course, you know, against the Dodgers, something like that happens. Uh, and, and so it's just it's frustrating and it's discouraging. But hopefully that's not um, indicative of of what's to come. Uh, but it's just I feel like this club just constantly finds itself like between a rock and a hard place. And Monday's loss is like a perfect example. And it seems like every week there's one or two of these type games where Bob Melvin is teetering between like, man, the bullpen is getting worked. We need this guy to give us another inning versus the writing on the wall. Like Seth Lugo's like he's losing it and <laughs> he's losing yeah. it fast. And the top of the order is coming up. And like how often has has he made the wrong call? And I'm not even blaming Bob Melvin. I'm just saying like he's in these sometimes kind of I don't want to say impossible, really difficult situations. And it seems like a 50-50 call. And for whatever reason, it's it ends up being the wrong 50 and things go haywire the way it did today. Uh, but when you got nothing out of Rich Hill, when Seth Lugo's struggling, when you got a bullpen day coming up, um, uh, that's it's just a rough spot to be in and and uh things things turned out quite poorly. It just did as as has been the case so often this season, it just things tend to kind of snowball against the Padres for whatever reason. Yeah. And you mentioned Bob Melvin and I had Derek Togerson on, uh, I think last week or a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about Bob Melvin and should he be a scapegoat? Like, does he deserve that? And does that make sense? And no, I, me and Derek both agreed, like, who are you going to bring in? Like, that's a big question that you got to ask. And there's a lot of fans that are going to say fire Bomo when things aren't working. Or <laughs> obviously when something, when a, when the decision in hindsight looks bad, fire him, he, he's sleeping, doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> but who are you going to bring in to replace Bob Melvin? Right. And what's, is the coaching staff going to be better than what it is if you go hire another manager who's probably going to have less experience than Bob Melvin? Cause who has more experience currently in major league baseball than Bob Melvin does. And those guys aren't going to the San Diego Padres. They're in major league baseball, managing other clubs already. Um, and there, there's a bunch of former managers on this staff. So it's like, why have Bob Melvin be the scapegoat and allow AJ Preller to hire another manager and what we're going to think that's going to work out. I think Bob Melvin, he's the one that has to manage all these superstars. How about mm -hmm. the superstars just go out and do their jobs better? That's kind of how I view it. Bob Melvin's made some mistakes. Obviously we can all yeah. agree on that just like every manager in baseball has, but he shouldn't be viewed as a scapegoat uh, just because you can't fire the players. Yeah. A few things there. Um, you also have to consider how well respected Bob Melvin is um, and how that would impact the optics of him getting fired. If if you're another one of those well-respected managers or somebody in baseball that would be considering this position and you saw Bob Melvin, somebody who is as admired and who has a great track record, everything but you know, winning a World Series as a manager, get fired when you know, a bunch of guys underperformed and there's kind of some issues with roster construction. You might think twice, you know, if you're one of these established guys about taking a Padres job, because if it can happen to Bob Melvin, like it can probably happen to anybody. There's the Ruben Niebla piece. Now he's a local guy. So maybe he would be up for sticking around San Diego, but you found the guy that you like, we figure could be the Padres, uh, you know, pitching whisperer until the end of time, you know, unless he's got aspirations to be a manager himself. Like you finally answered that question. Uh, do you want to run the risk of, of losing that guy? Uh, so I think there's a few different layers to it. And 
you know, on, on our podcast, Derek and I on Fryer, like we've had a couple, um, kind of national type folks, you know, um, that just have like kind of a broader outlook on the Padres and the league. Um, and that no, frankly, no more about the game than I do. And this question has come up and pretty much everybody's just like, no, it's like, it's not, not only is it not Bob Melvin's fault, we're overestimating the impact that managers can have on baseball teams. And I think it was Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Right? I know he's gotten in some trouble with Padres fans on Twitter lately, <laughs> but he, but he's a really smart guy. And um, I think it was him that said, if you traded Brian Snicker with Bob Melvin and Bob Melvin was managing the Braves, do you think the results change? Like the Braves are probably still the better team. Um because of talent level, the way you guys are performing, I'm sure roster construction. I mean, I haven't um, gone deep down the 40 man of the Braves, but uh, I, they seem to be where they are for a reason. I don't think it's just, you know, because of what the manager's doing. And so um, it's, we probably kind of overrate their impact a little bit. And, you know, if, if Xander Bogarts, you know, and I know he's been better since the all-star break, but, you know, looking at his high leverage numbers from like a month or so ago, like if those weren't dreadful and we know the runners in scoring position situations and the bullpen hadn't tanked for like a month plus, like would we really be asking ourselves these questions? Probably not. Um, like you said, has been, has Bob Melvin been perfect this season? Certainly not. You know, he was able to, you know, hit the right buttons last year, especially in mid September when they turned things around, that hasn't been the case for whatever reason. Um, but to put it on him, I think would probably be short-sighted and, and you make a great point. Like the grass isn't necessarily always greener and, you know, who do you think you're going to bring in that's going to magically fix things, especially when AJ Preller's track record for hiring managers to this point before Bob Melvin has left a lot to be desired. For sure. Yeah. Let's move to one of AJ Preller's players and that's Fernando Tatis Jr. On the Sunday night baseball broadcast, uh, Eduardo <laughs> Perez had an interesting comment. He loves getting in the news, you know, talking about Fernando Tatis Jr. on those broadcasts. And he was mentioning about how, yeah, Fernando, maybe he's lost his confidence because he's not in right or he's not shortstop anymore. Yeah. When he was at shortstop, that's when he got the big contract. He lost toys, not being at shortstop, not leading off. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And what, I'm obviously kind of joking with that. Like we know, I think we can agree. Like, I don't think Fernando's lost his confidence. I think he's been in a slump. I yeah. think when the Padres are losing on Sunday night baseball like that, I don't think we should expect him to be smiling and be super ener energetic. Um, <laughs> we want both though. Right. Like we want like, Oh, why are they bummed out? And then like, why are they having fun? You know, they should right. be having fun. They're losing. It's like, what do we, what do we want from these guys? Exactly. But just your overall thoughts, I guess on Fernando's season so far, I think he is confident, you know, the way he's playing the outfield. I mean, he's, yeah. he should win the gold glove. He, I think should have been an all-star this year. Um, maybe it took some time to adjust. And yeah, he's not leading off, but I still am. I still see him being confident out there. I can't remember what Eduardo got in trouble for before, but I do remember there was a that thing. he he Mookie homered and the camera was on Nando. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's right. What that's what a star looks, looks like. like. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Come yeah. on, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, he issued an apology about that. I don't think yeah. he'll be issuing an apology about this because uh, this seemed a little bit more like more pointed, whereas that. Um, 
and doing live TV, there are moments where you're like, oh, I'm going to ad lib or throw something in there and you do it. And you're like, ah, I don't think that came across the way that I <laughs> yeah. want it to be. So I I appreciate, you know, Eduardo and in, in, in that particular situation. But yeah, I thought his comments were a bit bizarre. Um he seems like he loves playing in right field yeah. and, you know, and, and especially somebody like you, I mean, you're at games all the time, the way he plays up with the crowd, um, the way he's flashed his athleticism. He's obviously been awesome out there. And so that doesn't seem like a thing at all. And is he not hitting leadoff because he's not a shortstop anymore? Or is he not hitting, hitting leadoff because they're tired of him hitting solo homers and, and doubling with nobody on base. You know, it's, and there's a pretty good guy named Hassan Kim who's leading off right now. He's been a revelation. And so to me, that was way more like, I think they're happy to have Fernando Tatis Jr. Hit lead off. If you know, the guys at the bottom of the order are, you know, kind of doing the second leadoff type situation. Like if, if Grisham and those guys are getting on base and, um, you know, some that's happened a little bit more, but that's been since, you know, Hassan Kim has kind of taken over this spot. It just makes sense for him to have somebody in front of him that he can drive in. Um, it's not like he's hitting six in the order. I mean, you know, it just makes sense with this group of guys, what he provides you uh, for him to be in the spot that he's in. And so I don't think there's anything there. I know he talked about the money like he signed a 14 year contract. Like he's, it's not going to have any impact on him. Like, I don't, I don't think he's going to be signing another deal. And I don't think him not playing at shortstop is going to have any impact on, you know, what that would look like from a monetary standpoint. And so, yeah, I agree. I thought that was a little bit clumsy and, and uh, just a strange analysis of where he's at and where and how he got here. Um, as far as Fernando season, like, I could understand if he wasn't feeling completely confident. Like, yeah, he like he hasn't been the same guy. Like, that's okay to say if we if we were to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, Fernando's the same guy. That would be an insult to the Fernando that we've seen because it's just not. I mean, you look at the numbers there. There's been a dip. That's okay. That's going to happen. Guys are going to have seasons like that, especially coming off the surgeries that he had and just the weird 18 months that he had leading up to this. Um I believe just like I think most people that like that Fernando is going to come back more consistently than it has. And we, we've seen flashes of it. Um, he hasn't been bad. He just hasn't been like peak Fernando Tatis Jr. perennial MVP candidate type guy. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, and, and I think that could come back any given game, any given moment, you know, every so often you see him hit a couple homers or whatever. And you're like, okay, I, I think there was an instance like a couple weeks ago. I was like, all right, we might be getting, you know, full Fernando Tatis Jr. Back. Um, so it just, it is what it is. The guy's gone through a lot. Um, and I think we knew going into this season, Fangraphs did a piece talking about potential dips in like, you know, WRC plus, you know, when guys come back off shoulder and it was like a, 25 point dip, generally speaking, based on guys that have gone through something similar to Fernando Tatis Jr. And that takes you from like what 150s, 160s into like 120s, 130s. Still pretty darn good, yeah. but just not to the extent that we've been accustomed to seeing because I mean, he spoiled us with how good he's been when he's been healthy. It's probably going to come back. We're probably going to see that guy again. Um, but it's probably natural to expect um, there to be kind of some more peaks and valleys. Um, in a season like this, given what he's gone through. Yeah. 
Have you seen the movie Anchorman, Darnay? That was <laughs> not, a weird question by Carl Ravage. I'm not that familiar was... with it. You'll have to tell me about this movie. <laughs> it's like that movie came out when he was five. That was just a bizarre question to ask as well. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, but not surprising, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. No one wants to talk about Anchorman here. <laughs> it's so tired. Anyway. Okay. So anyone that is new to this show uh, for months now, actually, I've been talking about other San Diego sports as well. I'm not like John and Jim where they can talk about other <laughs> San Diego sports on their radio show. Uh, so this is my platform to do that. And Darnay obviously covers other San Diego sports as well. And so here at the end, talk some San Diego state, us women's national team, San Diego wave uh, talking about San Diego state first here pack four now. And it might be the pack two because I think Stanford and, there was another school, I think, Cal maybe, Cal, that, yeah. that they're talking about ACC. There's so much going on, and it looked like San Diego State was in a great position to go to the Pac-12 and be in the same conference as Oregon and Washington and Stanford. Like, they were right there. But this all happened, obviously, the instability of maybe the TV deal with the Pac-12, and now San Diego State maybe just remains in the Mountain West. Maybe there's a merger with the remaining Pac-12 teams and the Mountain West Conference you know, the best conferences, the best schools there, or maybe it's just the entire conference and they can add Gonzaga for basketball or whatever. We'll see what happens. But do you think San Diego State's disappointed by this? Or do you think maybe they're in a good, they feel like they're in a good spot because they're going to be one of the premier programs that could end up being in this maybe merger if the Pac-12 and Mountain West decide to do that? I mean, how could you not be disappointed? Yeah. I mean, you you just, you'd have to be, uh, you know, if... If George Klyovkov had gotten that media rights deal done this spring, well ahead of the, what was it, uh, June 30th deadline, um, they invite the Aztecs. Uh, hopefully it's a, an, a, a good enough deal that it keeps everybody together and they're, they're in the Pac-12 like they've always wanted to be. They're suddenly a power conference program and all the money and opportunity and exposure that comes with it, uh, they get to benefit from. And now they're in this situation where, you know, you're, you're looking at like mountain West plus, you know, um, from, from listening to, to, you know, smart people, like I was just listening to Brett McMurphy did, um, an interview with uh, a radio station in Boise. And he's talking about how like Stanford's not going to want to join being a conference with, San Jose State and, and, you know, Fresno, those types of because of the academic, you know, prestige and all that. Um, And so that's where they probably feel like they align more with the ACC, with, you know, schools like UVA and Duke and UNC and all that. Does that make sense? Obviously, you're talking by coastal travels like crazy. Um, And also Stanford and Cal, like they've they've got a lot from like Olympic sports, but from the the revenue makers you know they haven't done a whole lot you know of late and acc's stuck in a meteorites deal through like 2036 that everybody's mad about and so are they going to want to like run the risk of having to share some of their money with these programs that you know aren't going to drive a whole lot in terms of football and basketball and their attendance is way down so it's just a lousy situation and yeah yeah you just feel like Whatever, whatever the potential best outcome was for the Aztecs just gets knocked down a peg little by little yeah. by little. 
and you know like could you bring in gonzaga um st mary's is right there too then you hear like big 12 is you know thinking about gonzaga and yukon for basketball only and you know if you bring in basketball you know gonzaga obviously doesn't do anything for your football but like you could say okay we, we got a pretty decent basketball conference um it's just it's frustrating um i'm a little bit tired of talking about it because it's just been what if yeah. for like 14 months now and we don't know anything more now than we did before other than who's not going to be involved you know those pac-12 programs that that jumped and then you see you know brett mcmurphy and um somebody from the athletic today saying like the Be the big 12 is not interested in san diego state and like gosh like that would have been such a great outcome and for whatever reason um you know and, and maybe it's just because they've they've gone after and and brought in these Pac-12 programs maybe they feel like you know they're they're good and they don't need the Southern California presence and you know kind of a, a mid-major type program um so it's it's depressing it's discouraging i hope you know i'm hoping for whatever the best possible outcome could be for the Aztecs um but it would appear that the best possible outcome is just not as enticing as exciting as it would have been you know, say six, three months ago. Yeah, it's going to be one of those what ifs in San Diego sports. Like, what if the Pac-12 stayed together? You know, as we know it, the Pac, the old Pac-12, and what would have happened there? The stability, if there would have been stability, San Diego State probably going to the Pac-12, and what would have happened to San Diego State, and how much it would have grown? I'm not saying it can't stop growing now, yeah. but it's just it's because they were in perfect position, like I said. Yeah. 100%. The one thing to look out for is, you know, because Pac-12's got this designation where I think they're calling it the Autonomous Five. Like you, the champion gets into the college football playoff with the expanded field. Yeah. So that's kind of the big what if now is like, does does that remain? I know there's going to be votes amongst like the playoff committee and that sort of thing. Do they strip that conference of that if that conference isn't sexy enough? But that's like kind of the one glimmer of hope. Like even if your conference is watered down, if you can somehow maintain that designation, then if San Diego State wins whatever that conference is, you're in the college football playoff. Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, just like the NCAA tournament, like that's all you want. That's all you're looking for. And, you know, a, a conference like Gonzaga, who's, you know, they've dominated it. Um, they have the profile they do not because of the WCC, but because of what they do in March. Um, and so if that's going to be kind of as soon as like it gets settled where they're going, I feel like that's going to be the next thing we have to watch is, okay, but what, what tier is this conference on and are they, or do they have a seat at the table? And if yeah. they do, then like, it doesn't have to be perfect. If you have a seat at the table, that's ultimately the most important thing. Um, I just fear the way that these conferences operate that if, they see a smaller fish and be like, I don't know if you, I don't know if you necessarily belong, but hopefully it's not the case. Yeah, for sure. Well, this upcoming football season, obviously the Aztecs are still going to be in the mountain West and at Snapdragon stadium. You can go get the best cheesesteaks in San Diego, Gaglion <laughs> bros, Gaglion bros, visit their website. They've got their main location on Friars road. They're at Peco park. They're at Snapdragon stadium, great garlic fries, great cheesesteaks. <laughs> so definitely check them out. Um, moving to the U S women's national team. My goodness. 
I know Darnay, you were up early in the morning. I was, I was up yeah. early, I, I was up early in the morning for all of their matches, all of the group stage, the knockout round. Uh, because I've I've been following this super closely, and I'm not just someone that follows just the World Cup, but she believes cup and the friendlies and all that. It's it was so disappointing. You know, that I think the group stage matchup or their their matches there, that was disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um now Naomi Gurma was not, uh, no. but not at all. She was very impressive, but just the way it ended there, like they finally, it seemed like they were clicking. Trinity mm-hmm. Rodman had some amazing shots. Lindsay Horan, yeah. a header off the post, had one blocked by obviously the Sweden keeper was tremendous in that match. Uh, Alex Morgan had a header that was blocked. And I think mm-hmm. the 89th minute, she had another shot that was blocked. And then in penalties, I mean, they had, a, you had Sophia Smith, the MVP. Yeah. Sophia Smith, just, make a penalty kick and they couldn't do it. Kelly O'Hara off the post, Megan Rapino out of all people, mm-hmm. Megan Rapino misses. It was just unbelievable. And then for them to officially be eliminated on a play where Alyssa Nair blocked it. And you know, the saying obviously didn't get in the back of the net. They literally Sweden literally won without getting it in the back of the net. <laughs> like just think by about a millimeter that. by a millimeter and by like an index card. Yeah, so really disappointing. Uh, just your reaction uh, of this World Cup for the U.S. Women's National Team for Naomi Gurma, for Alex Morgan, and what has yeah. Kelsey Turnbow, you know, talked about on your NBC Seven uh, Sports Wrap segments with her about Naomi Gurma and Alex Morgan, what, like what she has learned from her teammates, yeah. um, getting to know them. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been fun. She's kind of served as our World Cup analyst the last few weeks, and I was I was hoping we'd have a chance to get her in a couple more times, but yeah. uh, I, I don't know now that the United States is out. Um, but it's been great to get kind of a player's perspective, a teammate's perspective. I mean, she's got just such respect and admiration for them and the work that they've put in, you know, especially somebody like Alex Morgan, like just constantly talking about the work that she puts in somebody that's established, been established for a long time. You know, we always talk about athletes coming to San Diego and you can just coast, you retire here. You know what I mean? You just live off your name and reputation. It doesn't sound like she's done that. And I wouldn't expect that now, you know, I would, I would think that this kind of stoked something even more in her, just kind of the, a bitter finish, uh, to this, but, um, you know, she's a she's a roommate of Naomi Gurma's knows her really well. And and I asked her, I was like, I don't like she's just so calm and poised. Like, how does she do it? She's like, I don't know. I don't know how she does it <laughs> and stays so in control and slows herself down and makes the right reads. And to be in that position where you're constantly getting pressured, one mistake, the ball's going to be in the back of your net, essentially. Um, and, and never and never did that. And uh, yeah, just I think what what blew me away was the poise. It was cool seeing her try and initiate a little bit more offense in the match against Sweden, kind of more over the top balls. And it didn't amount to anything, but clearly that was kind of part of their their strategy. And she factored into that in a big way. And so I think it was neat to see somebody who, um, you know, I wasn't familiar with Naomi Gurma before she got drafted, you know, and first year with with the wave and you start to hear about her and her reputation and you know casey stoney just raves about her you know world-class center back she says it all the time to have her then go to the world cup and then deliver at such a high level where again much smarter soccer people than me said she's the team mvp and just you know julie fowdy and people that write about the game and cover the game just raving about her i think was really neat and you know solidified her as 
you know, she's the future. And so is Sophia Smith and, and Trinity Rodman. Um, you know, Sophia's going to have some demons that she's going to have to work through, you know, af- after this. And obviously had a great game against Vietnam, but I would think that PK would stick with you. Um, and I'm sure Naomi Gurma is going to come away with this feeling like she could have done some things better. But, you know, what a confidence boost for her to to perform the way that she did and kind of establish herself as like somebody that's going to be a, a really important factor for this for the national team for the foreseeable future. Yeah, for sure. You know, your conversations with Kelsey and the San Diego wave now, do you, do you get the sense that she's confident San Diego wave? They're confident that they can, you know, turn their play around. Cause they have been struggling. They haven't won in a while. And I know a lot of world cup players were gone and it was challenge cup. So it's, it's different circumstances, obviously, but do you think that they're confident that they can turn it around and end up making the postseason um, and hopefully making a long run and ending their season at Snapdragon for that championship game. Yeah. You know, it is, it is a little bit weird, you know, last year with the challenge cup, it was basically like a preseason deal. Yeah. And then, you know, this year it's right in the middle of the season. And I know, you know, there are aspects of that, that um, Casey Stoney wasn't thrilled about, and <laughs> she's been pretty vocal about, um, you know, they've, they've got the last playoff spot as it stands right now uh, with a two point edge on, Uh, Louisville and Orlando. And so, you know, it's and five points between them and Washington. So there's work to be done. How many matches has it been since they've won? I think it was like nine. Yeah, I think it's nine. The last the last match they won, I think, was in New Jersey against Gotham. That was a while ago. And that was when I think they had won four straight uh, road matches and they were just on fire. Yep. And they've they've struggled a little bit, but it is weird. I mean, you know, the, the Challenge Cup is it is kind of in a vacuum, right? And it's different for different teams. Um, it's obviously significant for teams like the wave and for OL rain and for the thorns. Um, but it's, and when you have, you know, the reigning goalkeeper of the year, defender of the year, golden boot winner, they're all gone for an extended period of time. Like how much can you really put into any of these matches? And, and maybe, Maybe it helps build some depth and, you know, more experience for players like Jane Shaw, though Jane Shaw is probably going to be on the field regardless. <laughs> um, you know, so it's we'll see when August 19th rolls around. I would guess at that point, everybody's going to be back. You know, we'll see what happens with Emily Van Egmond and um, Sophia Jakobsen with Australia and Sweden still around. Um, but if you at least get, you know, Naomi, Alex, Kaylin Sheridan, for that match or at least the August 25th match, you know, you got a, a month, really about two months left in the season um, to kind of make a push. That's plenty of time. And, you know, we've seen it with them. We've seen it with the loyal where like they're hot, maybe a little bit too early. Maybe they peak a little bit too early. And for whatever reason, they slow down at the end of the regular season and, and have some disappointment in the off season. So um, We'll see. I think probably not where we expected them to be in the standings, given what they did last year. Um, but look, just get I, I think they knew that this was going to be a challenging portion of the season. Get everybody back, get everybody healthy, um, win some matches, get into the playoffs and, and see what you could do. And you have a chance to play in the championship at home. And so yeah. it's like a little extra nugget of motivation for the team. Yeah, I love it. I, I can't wait for that to be in San Diego. That's going to be a great event. Obviously, San Diego Wave, their next match, August 19th, 7 p.m. against Gotham FC. So they that's going to be a tough match, obviously. Christy Mewis, Lynn Williams, Kelly O'Hara. There's mm-hmm. a lot of talent. Midge Purse, there's a lot of talent on that Gotham squad. All right, 
Darn A Trip, NBC7, a lot was covered here in episode 440 of the Talking Friars podcast and YouTube show. Thank you so much for the time, Darn A. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Hey, thank you for the highlights on Twitter. I'm yes. always going and checking out the highlights on Twitter. I'm looking at the bullpen charts. He was fresh day in and day out. So uh, keep up the great work. You're killing it. And I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, that is it, everyone. Talking Friars episode 440. Enjoy the rest of your day.